All right, we are in the second to last week of this sermon series going through, as I've said every week, a very significant section of Romans 12, verses 9 through 21, 13 verses. The Apostle Paul uses 38 verbs to describe the activity of followers of Jesus. And in this week 12, right before we conclude, next week, we come off the heels of a very hard passage to preach. And last week, if you were with us, I read verses 19 and 20. I just preached on 19. And this week, I'm going to read 19 and 20 again, but I'm just going to preach on 20. But you've got to understand how important this section begins. In fact, last week, you can go back and listen to that sermon online. Paul begins with this word, beloved. And what a great reminder that he is speaking to followers of Jesus and he goes right to their identity. He says, no matter who you are, what you've done, what people have said about you, what has happened to you, in Christ, you are beloved. You are loved in Christ. You are whole and righteous in Christ. You are a new creation in Christ. You are a masterpiece in Christ. And last week, we unpacked this truth that only out of the overflow of a relationship with God through Jesus Christ, through the power of the Holy Spirit, can we begin to even do anything that Paul says in this very difficult passage of Scripture? Last week, we talked about how there's times where we want to seek revenge. We want to take that which only God can and should do. We want to take matters into our own hands when somebody personally wrongs us and we want to seek revenge. But Paul says, don't do that. Instead, leave space for the wrath of God. And remember, when we leave space for the wrath of God, we get all of God, all of God's character, God's wrath, yes, but also God's love and his mercy and his grace and his justice and his forgiveness and his beauty. All of it comes together. Would love for you, if you missed that sermon, to go check that out. But let me read for us verses 19 and 20. I'm gonna preach just on 20. And again, what a powerful, relevant, timely passage of scripture. Scripture says about itself in 2 Timothy that all of scripture is God-breathed. All of it is useful for correction and teaching and reproof and training up in the ways of the Lord. And so as we go to God's word, yes, Paul wrote this to a group of Christians in first century Rome, but because it was inspired by the spirit of God, it speaks to us today. And so would you and me, would we open up our hearts to what God has to say for us. Let me read Romans 20 and 19 before that. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave room for the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. And now in verse 20. Now, if your enemies are hungry, feed them. If they are thirsty, give them something to drink. For by doing this, you will heap burning coals on their heads. This, my friends, is the reading of God's word. And as we say every week, thanks be to God. All right, so I gave a little setup that we unpacked in all of its full last week. But in verse 20, Paul takes it up a notch. I mean, come on, Paul, as hard as it was, and I shared last week, you know, in the flesh, it is so difficult to give space to entrust God with the thing that only God can do. To pour out God's wrath on the sin 
that people commit, myself included, in fact, Romans 3 says that all have sinned, all have fallen short of the glory of God. But in Romans 5, 1, it says that we've been justified by faith in Jesus Christ who protected us, who spared us from the wrath of God. God, God's self, God the Son took the wrath of God upon God's self. It was aimed at me, it was aimed at you. And Jesus took what we deserve. And so on one hand, that's, that's difficult in practice, easier said than done. But Paul now says there's another step. This isn't about just not getting revenge. This isn't just about leaving space for God's wrath. On the heels of that, the Apostle Paul says, no. In fact, if your enemy is hungry, give him food. And if he's thirsty, give him something to drink. And this is a direct quote from Proverbs 25, 21, where we believe it was King Solomon who wrote that proverb, said the exact same thing. And King Solomon ends that section in Proverbs 25 the exact same way that Paul ends this one verse. And he says, for in doing so, you will heap burning coals on their heads. What does this mean? All right, so I'm going to share with you some commentators, some scholars who have given their perspective on what this means. Maybe some of you are familiar uh, with a scholar by the name John Stott. He wrote a commentary called The Message of Romans, and he says this. He's, he's grasping for it. A lot of people believe that this phrase has been lost over the course of 2,000 years of history, but John Stott says this. You know, some have suggested that the pain inflicted by the burning coals on your enemy's head is a symbol of the shame and remorse experienced by an enemy who is rebuked by kindness. Still another option is that the coals are a symbol of penitence. Recent commentators, Stott says, draw attention to an ancient Egyptian ritual in which a penitent would carry burning coals on their head as evidence of the reality of their repentance. In this case, the coals are a, a dynamic symbol of change of mind, which takes place as a result of a deed of love. So John Stott, he's grasping, he's saying that you know, there's a lot of different opinion as to what this means. A lot of people have focused on it, have commentated on it. It could be painful, shame and remorse when you rebuke someone with kindness. Or it could be this symbol that, you know, has its origins in Egypt. But another scholar says this. Woost, in his word studies of the New Testament, Kenneth Woost says this. As to heaping coals of fire on the head of the one who has injured you, that is actually equivalent to satisfying their hunger and thirst. He goes on, he says this. You see, the latter two actions satisfied hunger and quenching thirst, actually meet a desperate need of that individual and are actually an outstanding kindness shown to him. Because, you know, when you, when you read that, it, it starts off kind, but then the Coles thing seems to just throw it off. Boos says, no, 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 those are, those are all acts of kindness. He goes on to explain, he says this, speaking about himself, he says, the author cannot put his hand on the source from where he procured the following, but he gives it, Wusa's saying, I give it to you, 
for what it may be worth as an explanation of a very difficult passage. In biblical times, a person from the East needed to keep their hearth fire going all the time in order to ensure that it was ready for cooking and for warmth. If it went out, they had to go to a neighbor for some live coals of fire from their hearth. They would then carry on their head a container. I mean, I carry like this. I don't carry like this. I got a jacked up neck, but they carry their head on a container. That's me speaking, not, not woost. They would carry on their head a container back to their home. And the person who would give them some live coals would be meeting their desperate need and showing them outstanding kindness. In fact, if they would heap the container with coals, the man would be sure of getting some home still burning. So they would literally load it up so that they could go and give it to the neighbor with enough to then get back home and make sure their hearth was still ready and burning with a fire. So he goes on, he concludes by saying, the one injured would be returning kindness for injury in the context of Romans 12, 20. The only thing, and I love this, the only thing a Christian is allowed to give back to the one who has injured him is kindness. This act of kindness God could use to soften the heart of the person and lead them to repentance and the offering of recompense for the injury sustained. In this way, the Christian would actually overcome evil with good, referencing verse 21, which we'll get to next week. There's all these different opinions, all these different theories. I got to tell you, I've got no idea what Paul is saying here when it comes to that phrase. And in doing so, you will heap burning coals on their head. But what's interesting is I, even though I don't fully know the fullness of what that means, though I know very clearly what it means when your enemy is hungry, give them some food. When they're thirsty, give them something to drink. Though that's clear, I leapfrog over the clarity of that action and that command. And I get to this passage and confessionally in the flesh, in my own humanness, I focus on that. And you know what I do? I say, well, God, let's talk about, let's talk about these coals. I mean, are they like, Red hot burning coals, because that sounds good to somebody who's wrong me. I mean, are they like liquid hot magma coals? Because that sounds real good to get back at somebody. I mean, God, hold on. Is there a, a direct proportion of the amount of coals and the amount of heat in relation to how much they've wronged me? I mean, is there a way we can negotiate the amount of coals and the heat, God? In the flesh, I might say this. You know, is there interest, compound interest? Can we just add to this? And Paul's like, no, stop. Drew, why focus so much on the coals? Why turn it into something that perhaps distorts what Paul originally meant? When it was after the fact that he says very clearly, look, you beloved, don't avenge. Don't rush to the coal part and try to use kindness to really hurt them. You know, kill him with kindness. No, 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 no. Beloved, don't avenge yourself. Leave room for the wrath of God and do so even more when they are hungry. Feed them. When they're thirsty, give them something to drink. 
Sometimes in the hardness of the teaching of Jesus, we can get distracted by something else. You see, all of scripture is useful for teaching, correction, reproof. I'm not to say that this is not important. What I am saying is that there is a mystery to who God is. The depth of the riches of the wisdom of God, as Paul says in uh, Romans 11, causes me to say, I have not mastered this. And I want to spend the rest of my life studying it. In spirit, give me wisdom. Maybe somebody in the church knows exactly what that means. Give them the, you know, prompt them to let me know what that means. You see, as we study God's word, this is the living word of God for us. And we have the rest of our lives, the rest of eternity to allow it to point us to our living God. But again, this is a hard teaching. So where do we get the strength? Where do we get the, the composure? Where do we get the courage? Where do we get the humility? How do we even do this uh, with pure intentions? And Paul, again, he reminds us in the beginning of the section, he says, beloved, beloved, beloved. This has to be out of the overflow of your relationship with God. There's no technique. There's no principles. There's no mind tricks that you can do to somehow pull this up. It's not about just, uh, you know, faking it until you make it. No, out of the overflow of your relationship with Jesus. In other words, as you spend time, much more than just an hour on Sunday, much more than in just the context of a worship service. As you spend time immersing your life in God's word, as you spend time in prayer, as you spend time meditating on the life of Jesus, as you don't just look at the life of Jesus and hear his teachings, but as Jesus says in Matthew 7, you also put those teachings into practice, something begins to happen. You know, I want to share something with you. This is a little window into how I navigate moments where I feel like I have clearly been wrong. Now, now I'm not talking about moments where, you know, somebody is giving me just, you know, criticism. I'm not talking about those moments. I'm not talking about where somebody makes me feel uncomfortable. I'm not talking about where somebody maybe says something, that, you know, that offends me. No, I'm talking about when somebody intentionally tries to hurt me with their words or with their actions. I'm not just talking about how I interpret something different than they intend. No, I'm talking about when they intend to harm. There's one scene that I rehearse in my mind and in my heart. And I'm not perfect, so I don't always rehearse this scene in my mind and in my heart. And in those moments where I don't rehearse it, I, 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 I rely on my own strength. I rely on my flesh and I don't leave room for God. And then I say things that I regret saying. But more and more and more, through the power of the Holy Spirit, I am rehearsing a scene and it makes all the difference in the world. You know, a number of weeks ago, we talked about premeditated mercy. Maybe for some of you, before that phone call, before that situation, before that meeting, where you think that you might retaliate, return evil for evil, where you might go into it seeking revenge, you know, you can actually premeditate 
on mercy in advance by rehearsing this scene like I've rehearsed this scene and watch what happens. So sit in for a moment. Just settle in. I want you to to imagine this scene with me. It's not a fictional scene. It's a scene recorded in scripture by the gospel writer John in John 18. And I often just picture it with all the details from scripture that I can bring into me picturing it. And my prayer is that as you picture this scene, God would change your heart, especially towards the one that has wronged you. So the scene is after Jesus has prayed for not only his disciples that were with him that night, but for all the disciples after that. And after he prayed for you, after he prayed for me. This is a scene just after the Last Supper that he shared with his disciples. The scene goes as follows, where Jesus leaves that space after that prayer and he descends into the Kidron Valley. This is at night. The Kidron Valley, also known as the Valley of Darkness. And he goes to the Garden of Gethsemane, also known as the Garden of the Olive Press. And there, he prays. It's a different kind of prayer. It's a prayer of anguish, a prayer of despair, a prayer of trust. And in reference to the cup of wrath that Jesus was about to drink that is described throughout scripture as the cup that God's enemies were supposed to drink. Jesus sweating blood. I just picture it. Prays about that cup of wrath and says, Father, take this cup away from me. But not my will. Your will be done. Imagine Jesus beginning to experience the wrath of God out of love for you and me. I want you to imagine Judas marching a group of people like a processional, carrying lanterns, sticks, and weapons. The Pharisees are following him, the police of the high priest and a detachment of Roman soldiers. It is the height of human-made religion and Roman rule descending upon the Son of God. Now that detachment could be upwards of 300 Roman soldiers, the most powerful military on the planet. Would you imagine the force, the weight, the power coming in Jesus. And Jesus, remarkably, John says, knowing full well all that was going to happen to him, asks a question, as Jesus always does. And he asks this question to the, this military might, these Roman soldiers, and he says, 
Who were you looking for? Remember, John just said he knows full well all that is about to happen to him. There's only one on the planet who knows full well what is about to happen to him, and it's God in the flesh. This is the fullness of God asking them a question. Who are you looking for? And they respond with a very limited view of who Jesus is. And they say, Jesus from Nazareth. But then Jesus responds. More than just a man. More than just one from Nazareth, more than just a carpenter, more than just a great teacher. He responds as the great I am and he speaks the same name that came from the burning bush to Moses when Moses asked, who are you? And he says, I am. And I want you to picture those Roman soldiers who were paid to stand on their feet, the most powerful force in all the cosmos, human-made on the planet in that moment. They thought they were, they fall to the ground. They're now on their backs from the voice of God, saying the very name of God, of who Jesus really is. I am who I am. And then Jesus asks the question again, who are you looking for? They're on their backs. And I imagine them and I hear them and I see them responding with a lot less power, a lot less conviction, a lot less uh, intimidation. And they say, Jesus from Nazareth? And then Jesus does something. that absolutely transforms my heart and my mind in moments where I want revenge. Jesus demonstrating his power as the great I am, the maker of heaven and earth. Uh, it was part of speaking all things into existence. Colossians 1 says that all of creation was made through him and by him and for him. Hebrews 1 says that he is the radiance of God's glory. He can command angel armies to descend upon this human army. He could have done all these things. And he says, I told you that I am. So take me and let my disciples go. And in that moment, turned every power structure upside down. And with his power, he began to lay down his life. And his scripture says, there is no greater love than this than one who had laid down their life for their friends. With all that power, Jesus says, take my life and let them go. Then in that moment, I want you to picture this. Peter, one of the followers of Jesus, he, he pulls out his sword. He thinks he's doing the right thing. They're about to arrest Jesus. Jesus has just done this. They're on their back and he pulls out the sword and he cuts off the ear of Malchus, the servant of the high priest. And right there in that moment, I am reminded that I have a choice. Do I take the Peter way, the human way, the avenging way? Or do I go the Jesus way, my Lord's way, my Savior's way? Friends, you have that choice too. You have a choice in those moments where you want to seek revenge to go the Peter way or the Jesus way. And the Apostle Paul in Romans 12, 19 says, don't avenge 
You probably knew Peter's story. Don't avenge. Leave room for the wrath of God. But go even further. And Jesus went even further. He did so much more than just giving food to a hungry man, drink to a thirsty man. He miraculously healed the ear of Malchus that had just been cut off. To an enemy. He didn't just get arrested. He undid the revenge of Peter. He made things right. He made things whole. He reminded Malchus and Peter and everyone who was there. There's something that happens when you let Jesus do what only Jesus can do. And he goes eventually to Pilate. And in a sham trial, he is beaten. He is ashamed. He is mocked. He is uh, tormented, tortured. And he goes to the cross. And as he goes to the cross, he goes not as a victim. He goes victorious. And as I rehearse that scene in my mind, maybe as you hear that scene unfold in your mind, I know for me it melts my heart. It begins to remind me that Jesus did all of that. As Hebrews 12 says, for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross, he disregarded shame. He was willing to lay down his life for the joy that was set before him. And the joy was that we would be on the other side reconciled to God, that he would defeat death, that he would be able to give us his record of righteousness and take our sin and the wrath pointed at it. And it causes me in that moment to realize, oh, I used to be God's enemy. Jesus could have done anything other than that which he actually did. He could have destroyed me. He could have let God's wrath just pour out upon my sin and destroy. But he stepped in the gap out of love. And now I have been formerly an enemy of God, have now been brought in, not because of my own good deeds, not because of my own good works. And so I can't go around with this pride of, oh, well, now I'm in and no wonder you're out. No, I am humbled as part of God's family. And that's why I continue to hear what Paul says, beloved, beloved, Look at Jesus. Look at what he did in the face of his enemies. Look at how he took the shot that we deserved. And now out of the overflow of that, love your enemy as yourself. Give them food, give them drink, do whatever you can. Because you have no idea what God can use it for, for God's glory. You know, many of us uh, own Bibles, of course, in the English language that uh, come from different translations. And, you know, here at Bel Air, we, we read from the New Revised Standard Version. And, of course, this English translation has been translated from the Hebrew. And, of 
course, from the Greek and the Aramaic. And there's a history to this Bible that maybe some of you are already aware of. And I want to share this just brief history because I believe that there is a part of uh, this history and it being translated in English that might give us just a, a really clear example of what this could look like to not take vengeance in our own hands, but to go even further and to wish good on someone else. Now, some of you perhaps have heard of the name William Tyndale. In fact, William Tyndale was born uh, just before the year 1500. It was like 1492 or something in England. And so, you know, as he grew up, he went through a school of theology. And he found himself as he uh, heard the teachings of Scripture, as he studied Scripture, as he began to translate from the Hebrew and from the Greek, he began to realize that there was something that he was hearing from the church at the time, the Roman Catholic Church at the time, that didn't sit right with him. And it was basically this, that it was believed at that time that you could only understand God's word if and only when an ordained clergyman taught it to you. So there wasn't the practice back then like there is today where people owned Bibles, where people studied scripture on their own, where people could actually spend time allowing God's word to saturate their life and transform it. It was only when they went to mass. And so there was a lot of contention at that time because Tyndale began to be outspoken and said, no, people need to be able to have their own Bible. We need to translate into a language that they can read and understand and not just have this come from just an ordained clergyman. That caused a lot of commotion, it caused a lot of strength, caused a lot of discord. But he so felt God calling him down this route. And there was this famous moment where he gets uh, verbally attacked and, and rebuked. And he says that it is my goal that one day that a little boy plowing a field would be able to understand as much of God's word as an ordained clergyman. <laughs> That was the last straw that went against the face of the religiosity at that time. And so somebody in his life actually betrayed him. He was arrested. It was this sham trial. And he was sentenced to death. And history tells us that he was not only strangled at the stake, but then after he died, he was burned. And the last thing that he said as a man who had immersed his life in God's word, as a man who had already translated from the Hebrew and from the Greek into the English language, but it wasn't officially sanctioned, it was outlawed, it was, it was taken away, it was burned, it wasn't allowed to be made public. This man who had immersed himself in the life of God had a relationship with Jesus. And he knew the teachings of Jesus and he knew that it was Christ's heart to love through him even in that moment. To love your enemies yourself. And so what does he yell out as he is about to be killed? He says, Lord, open the eyes of the King of England. With a loud voice, with a clear voice, he says, Lord, open the eyes of the King of England. He could have said so many things in that moment. And he prayed, God, open his eyes. And then he died. 
You see, things happen. And sometimes it takes time. When we're obedient to Jesus' leading, what Tyndale didn't know is that that phrase wrecked King Henry VIII. Apparently it haunted him in a good way, causing him to be open to God answering Tyndale's prayer. And his eyes were opened and he changed his mind. And four years after Tyndale was killed, bird, that king of England officially sanctioned the production, the publication, and on the Gutenberg Press, the first English translation of the Bible. It was called the Great Bible. Over time, that translation was then copied. It was then spread. It then later became the King James Version. And it began a movement of Bible translation that it leads on to this moment today. And I think about that time in a room on the University of Southern California campus where my roommate opened up the Bible to Romans 10, 9, and 10 in the English language. And he said to me, Drew, man, you are being the Lord of your life and you are being the Savior of your life. And because of that, you're not a Christian. You're a moral person. You seem like a Christian, but you're your own Lord. You're your own Savior. But look, Romans 10, 9, and 10 says this, that if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And for the first time, God's word through the English language pierced through my heart and began a chain reaction of self-reflection, of, of questioning, of ultimately making a decision on April 8th of 2000 to say yes to Jesus as my Lord and Savior. And Tyndale and his obedience was part of my transformation being able to read now. Something happens in a way that we might never see in our lifetime when we choose to step out in obedience to the way of Jesus, the teachings of Jesus. I have no idea what God wants to do through you, through me, through us, but I do know this. We are God's beloved. Let's leave space for God's wrath and all of God's character. But let's go beyond that. Let's extend kindness and love to even people who wrong us. Let's pray. Jesus, we need you. We need your spirit. We can't do this on our own. So would the first thing that we do right now, just bring our hearts back to you, Jesus. May we receive your love and out of the overflow of that, would we love others? Of course, the people in our life, people whom it's easy to love, but especially those who it's humanly impossible to love. Jesus, we thank you that while we were still sinners, while we were your enemy, you died for us. You've shown us the way. You've given us your spirit. You've called us to follow you. You've sent us out. 
Now may you walk with us as we step out in obedience. In Jesus' name I pray and we say together, amen.